We're going to be focusing on an unwelcome side of being God's people this morning. It may seem counterintuitive, but belonging to God guarantees, mark that, belonging to God guarantees suffering. Unwelcome side of being a disciple of Jesus, being the family or the people of God, really, I kind of was expecting and hoping that being on God's side, well, guarantees suffering. Well, we could list a lot of reasons for this. One would be the hatred and hostility of Satan for God and for all that belongs to God. We just read the book of Job. We could add also the, the clash of darkness and light. They're in opposition to one another. You would think, again, so in, in some ways it seems a little counterintuitive, you would think that those who are in darkness would desire light, they would want light, but John wrote that people actually love their darkness. They want to keep it, and they hate the light when it shines on them. There's a third reason I'll give you this morning. This is not the focus of the message. It's kind of getting our hearts ready for Daniel chapter 8. But a third reason, I'm going to put this in a way that uh, maybe not everybody enjoys using this word, but we live in a screwed up world. It just is the way it is. And sometimes stuff happens and you look at it and you go, how am I supposed to make sense of this in my life? And in the end, you're just left like Job going, huh? What, God, are you doing? This makes no sense. It's broken. We're broken, the world's broken, and it inflicts a lot of pain on us. But there are other reasons, and these begin to draw us toward Daniel chapter 8. Reasons that are more on the unwelcome side of discipleship or belonging to God, and they are God's judgment and God's discipline. And there are things we may not always want to think about, but that is what Daniel chapter 8 is drawing our attention to. There are dark days, according to Daniel chapter 8, ahead for God's people. And they need to know that. They need to understand that. There's going to be some intense suffering ahead, and he wants to prepare them for it. He also wants them to understand why it's coming. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 8, if you haven't already. If you need a Bible, would like one, there's one in front of you underneath the chairs. Otherwise, grab your phone, your tablet, whatever it is you got there. You know, it's funny today when you say, turn in your Bibles, you don't hear anything. <laughs> and you think, nobody's turning in their Bible, right? <laughs> All right, Daniel chapter 8. Now, in chapter 7... We were given the vision, God gave the vision, sweeping vision of all of history, starting with Babylon, starting with Daniel's own time, all the way to the end, all the way to that final world dictator who the Ancient of Days will destroy and entrust the kingdom to his son, all the way to the end when Jesus receives the kingdom and then we, his people, finally at last enjoy the kingdom of God in its fullness. That's chapter seven, that great, grand, sweeping vision of all of history to the end. Now here in chapter 8, he's going to zoom in on a part of that vision. Just kind of narrow it down and look at a slice of what he revealed in chapter 7. And as we're going to see, the vision that God gives Daniel here in chapter 8 is a preview of some intense suffering that's ahead for God's people. Not exactly the kind of prophecy or prediction that you're excited to hear. But that is the word of chapter 8. 
And when you read it, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is why is this here? Why has God given us this? And we'll talk about that in just a moment, a little more fully, but God has given this to us not just to satisfy curiosity, not to just kind of help us who are prophecy buffs with our questions. He didn't give us a crystal ball of things. He's given us for a very, very crucial reason in our lives. Now, before we do that, there's one other point of interest and that is that Hebrew, I'm sorry, Hebrews. In Daniel chapter eight, Daniel starts to write in Hebrew again. He's been writing in Aramaic. He started the book in Hebrew. He wrote chapter one in Hebrew. He wrote the first uh, three and a half verses in, or four and a half verses, three and a half verses at the beginning of chapter seven in Hebrew. And then he switches to Aramaic. And he goes all the way, uh, chapter two, I'm sorry. Chapter two, he starts into Aramaic and all the way through the end of chapter seven. Now he starts to write in Hebrew again. Now, if you were a literate person living in, the, in what we call today the Middle East, you would be able to read Aramaic. And so one of the questions, why did Daniel switch back and forth? If you think about the contents of these chapters, it becomes pretty evident why he would put some of the book in Aramaic and some of it in Hebrew. Most people probably, unless they were Jewish or lived very close to Israel, wouldn't even be able to read Hebrew. And so by writing in Hebrew, he's addressing that particularly to God's people, to the Jewish people. But by writing in Aramaic, he's really addressing that to everyone who's literate. Everyone that can read, Jew or Gentile, could read chapters two to seven. And as you look at the contents, it's not difficult to guess or to see why he would want to do that. Chapter two is the great statue, head of gold, and on down through the feet of iron, toes mixed with iron and clay, and then comes the great stone cut out without hands, rolls down, crushes the statue, pulverizes it, it blows away, the stone grows into a great mountain, fills all of the earth. See, there's a message being delivered, not just to God's people, but to everyone. You go into chapter three, you've got the fiery furnace. What is that? Most powerful king in the world at that time, within that frame of reference. God delivers from his power. Chapter four, you got Nebuchadnezzar, again, this great, most powerful leader, very effective but lifted up in his arrogance, and what happens? God humbles him for seven years. Seven years of insanity. There's a message. Really, if you think about it, we would say it this way. God's letting the gospel be heard in the Gentile world at that point. He's letting the true and living God be known to those who will read and have ears to hear. Chapter five, you got the handwriting on the wall, an arrogant king who blasphemes against God in a feast, and he is brought down that very night. And then chapter six, Daniel in the lion's den. Again, the triumph of God over the powers of nature and the powers of the empires. And Daniel chapter seven, then the sweeping vision where the ancient of days, God on his throne triumphs over the powers of the nations and gives the kingdom to his son and to his people. That was for everybody. Now in chapter 80, he switches back to Hebrew because these visions are really especially for God's people. As we get into chapter eight, you'll see that, sure, if somebody were able to read, if a Gentile were able to read this, so be it, but especially God's people need to hear this message. It is a serious message. It's a sobering message. It's a message that leaves Daniel sick for days. And it's not necessarily one of those Sundays where you come and you get cheered up. <laughs> 
But it's a message for God's people and we need it. So let's start now into chapter eight. The time and place of the vision are found in verses one and two. When and where. When is verse one. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. This is second. I had a vision before. Now, a year to two years later, I'm being given a second vision. The first one came in Belshazzar's first year of reigning, now in his third year of reigning. We're still chronologically between chapters four and five. We're back into the Babylonian Empire time. Chapter five, the handwriting on the wall, that's the end of Babylon's, the Babylonian Empire. We're back now, backing up about 11 years or so, 10 or 11 years, back into prior to the end of the Babylonian Empire. Why? The interesting question is, you, you, you reflect on, you say, why is Daniel telling us this? Why is he giving us the time frame? And why is that important for us to understand? Well, at that time, there's another power. Babylon's been the great superpower of its time, but there is another power that's beginning to rise. Now, Babylon is Iraq. Another power is beginning to rise. It's Iran. It's Persia. Cyrus, the king of Persia, has defeated the last king of the Medes. And now the Babylonians are getting a little nervous. This is historical. We're not just guessing at it. We know this historically. Just as you begin to see other countries begin to do, doing things, exerting power, you start to get a little nervous. You can imagine, you can remember either from your history lessons or from just living through it, a few of you anyway, that as, as Hitler began to gain in power, Europe starts to get nervous. It's that sort of situation. And so why then give a vision at that point in time? It's because God knows his people are gonna need to hear a word from him. Not only is the Babylonian empire getting a little nervous about what's going on in the next door and what this is gonna mean for them, but the very people of God who are aware and alert to what may be going on in the world are also gonna be concerned, just as you and I would be concerned about world events. If you're one of those kinds of people that pays attention to the news and what's going on in the world and you see stuff that is alarming and, and concerns the world, you too become concerned as one of God's people. And so as God's people are also potentially observing some of these events and aware of what is going on, they also need a word from God. They need a word of reassurance. And so God gives this vision in part to reassure them. What did we just sing? God over all. Reigning. That's the message of Daniel. We sang the core theme of Daniel just before I came up. And that's the core message of every chapter. Again, that's a core message. The people of God are going to need reassurance at this point. That this inter, what is this international turmoil going to mean for their future? But they're also going to need to be prepared. God is preparing his people. This is a word of preparation ahead of time for them. They're going to face in the future a terrible ordeal. They're going to face an Adolf Hitler. They're going to face a Holocaust. And they're going to need to be prepared. They're going to need to understand and ready themselves. But God also, even in telling them that, this is really important to understand, even in telling his people of a future 
Holocaust, the terrible ordeal that is to come, that in itself is to prepare, but also to reassure them. Reassure them that this suffering will be for a time and not forever. And reassure them that he is reigning and to comfort them and give them hope that it will last for a time, it will end. And he still has a purpose for his people. He is not abandoning them. One commentator put it this way, God's people also needed to be warned of another crisis that would come in less than 400 years after Daniel's lifetime. The persecutions of a madman named Antiochus IV or Epiphanes, you see the dates there, it would be one of the most horrible periods in history for believers, a time when the very existence of the true religion and its adherents was threatened. God knew that for those brief only a few years, but extremely dark days, his people would need a supernatural revelation to encourage them as they face their great tribulation. So here we are, third year of Belshazzar. World events are on the move. Powers are rising. What do God's people need to hear? Verse two, and I saw in the vision... And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, he's transported in his vision. Physically, he's probably in Babylon. But in the vision, he's transported to another city. I'm just going to give you the map and kind of show you where we're at here. Babylon is here, and then Susa is over here. Why mention that city? Well, it's going to be important. It's going to eventually become a capital, one of the royal cities for the Persian Empire. In fact, this is the city where Esther arises and lives out her <laughs> reign as queen. And this is also the city where Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar where Nehemiah will serve as the king's cupbearer. So you can see both the verses from Esther and the verse from Nehemiah that this is the place. So he is transported in a vision. What's interesting to me as I read this, I don't know for a fact, but it, 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 I get the sense as he's seeing this vision that it's not just kind of like his eyes are closed and he's dreaming or his eyes are open, he's kind of watching a movie. I get the sense it's almost like he's there, that he's experienced kind of a holodeck-like experience. That's sort of a 3D realistic vision that he's being given. I can't prove that, but I get that sense as I read it. He says he's standing there on the banks of the Ulai Canal. That's, that was a, uh, an irrigation channel. It turns out, as you study this, you get into the, to the history of that region. This is a, a flood plain or alluvial plain, and because of the constant uh, flooding of that region over the centuries, uh, the channels shift all the time, and nobody can say for sure exactly where that uh, canal or that channel would have been at the time. But it was there outside the city walls at the time, and it was used for irrigation. And so Daniel is there, and he's standing on one of the banks of this channel, and he's seeing and experiencing this vision. And here comes the vision. The content of the vision is in verses 3 to 14. And there's basically just three parts to this. He sees a ram, he sees a goat, and then he sees a horn, the ram in verses three to four, he sees this animal with two large horns. Both of the horns are large, they're high, but one is larger. And this ram is powerful and this ram is conquering, conquering to the west and to the north and to the south. Now you think of the map there, to the west would be toward what we today know as Turkey. 
To the north would be moving upward from where he is, would be expanding up into what we think of as Iraq and Iran, the northern parts of Iraq and Iran. But to the south then is toward Egypt. And that's exactly what you see in the conquest of uh, the Persian Empire. This beast represents the Medes and the Persians. We're going to be told that a little later. It says, no beast, in verse 4, could stand before him. No one could rescue him. He did as he pleased and became great. He became now this ram or the Medes and the Persians. The Babylonians were the superpower. Now the Persians are the superpower. Iraq was the superpower. Now Iran is the superpower at the time. The next part of the vision, verse 5, is the goat. As he is considering, it says, as he's, he's looking at this and he's, he's, he's just wondering at it. Understand Daniel is watching or seeing or experiencing this. He's not creating this. This is not an exercise in creative writing. He's not trying to send a coded message. This isn't coming from his imagination. He's watching this. He's looking at it. And as he's looking at it, he's considering, he's contemplating, what is this? I mean, what, what does this mean? So verse five, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west. We're going to be told a little later that this is Greece. This is Alexander the Great. This goat now is coming. It says its feet is not even touching the ground, which is representing the speed of Alexander's conquest. He conquered all of that great Persian empire in just the space of a few years. The great horn coming out of the head of this of this uh, goat, and with that horn, with great wrath, great anger, he charges against the ram, and he breaks the horns off the ram, throws the ram to the ground, and he tramples on it and conquers the ram. Verse 8 says, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Alexander didn't enjoy his power for very long. He died very young. He was only 32 years old. And then his empire was broken up into four parts. And that's what the the vision is depicting. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So Daniel's looking at this. He's watching this go on. And then something else happens, the third part of the vision, the horn. Called a little horn, but it really just starts out little. In other words, it seems to just kind of bud out of one of these other horns and then grow and become large. Out of one of them came a little horn, verse 9 says, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, Egypt, toward the east, Persia, toward and on toward what we know as Afghanistan and Pakistan, over toward the borders of India, and toward the glorious land. You may have the word uh, beautiful. You may have in your translation, obviously referring to the land of Israel. It is glorious or beautiful, not necessarily for its scenery, but because it is the chosen place where God has made his presence to dwell among his people. Notice verse 10. It grew great even to the hosts of heaven, host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, the host of heaven of the stars. Just note that, and we'll talk about that in a bit. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. The regular burnt offering was taken away from the prince of the hosts, or host. 
And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Just a note on that number of days there, 2,300 days is six years and almost four months. Some people believe because of the reference to morning and evening there that it really is, is half that figure, 1,150 years, and that computes into about 3.15 years or so. I mentioned this, first of all, right now, just to note this is a different figure than that time, times, and a half a time, that three and a half years that we looked at last week. It's a different time frame. And that's important to note as we'll ask the question of exactly who is this talking about in this vision. So there it is, the vision. First the ram, and then the goat that conquers the ram, and then the little horn that grows and becomes powerful and throws down hosts of heaven and stars of heaven and, and rises up against the prince of the host. There is the vision. Again, just let me emphasize, Daniel is not creating this. Daniel is not writing something out of his imagination he saw this, and maybe even he was experiencing in a kind of a 3D realistic sense. This is what he saw. And he's writing it down for us. The question then becomes, so what does it mean? And that was Daniel's question. If you look at verse 15, we move now to the interpretation of the vision. If you're questioning me whether Daniel composed this or simply saw it and tried to describe it, verse 15 should answer you and settle the question. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. If he was creating this out of his imagination, he would have known what he meant. But he's seen this now, and he's going, okay, what is this? What does it mean? And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel Make this man understand the vision. So he hears a human voice, a male human voice, probably the voice of God, actually, calling upon this other figure whom he names as Gabriel to come and explain to Daniel what the vision means. This is the first time in the Bible, chronologically, that an angel is named. And lo and behold, it's an angel we know very well, isn't it? And we'll see him again before we're done with the book of Daniel. So verse 17, he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened. I always love this. I think that he was terrified. I mean, there are words for this, you know, that you, you wouldn't even use. I was frightened and fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Make a note of that. That's important, and we're gonna discuss that in a moment. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. I read one commentator this week that said, it's hardly time to be taking a nap. And I thought, dude, this man is not taking a nap. He has fainted. He has passed out. But he touched me and made me stand up. 
You understand this is an intense experience. I've been saying this, but I want to repeat it again. We read this in a book, and we sit here, and we kind of analytically read this and try to, okay, what's this about? He's looking at this, and then a man approaches him who turns out to be the angel Gabriel, and he is in such shock that he passes out. Later at the end, we're going to be told the impact of this entire experience, because it's not over yet, is that he's laying in bed sick for three days. Now, this is an intense experience, and it's going to get worse because of the content of what Daniel is about to be told. Verse 19, he said, Behold, I make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the rest of this interpretation, so I want you to get exactly what the text says. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king, Alexander. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So we're not guessing anymore. In fact, we can take this information, we can read it backwards into the previous chapter. There we can see there's a bear One side is raised. We know that corresponds to this ram with one horn that's larger because Persia was the dominant partner in the Medes and Persians. And then we can look at this with the four horns. We're four kingdoms. We can go backwards to the leopard that's got four heads and it becomes all the clearer and we're no longer in the realm of debating. It's settled for us exactly who this is talking about. Verse 23, at the latter end of their kingdom... That is, these four that into which the Alexander's empire was divided. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the morning that has been told is true. But seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Now, seal up in this case does not mean keep it secret. That's kind of the way you might read it naturally, initially, kind of seal it, put it away. Nobody needs to know about it right now, but that's not his point here. Seal it for preservation. It's not going to happen right away. It's coming down the road. We know almost four centuries later, so you make sure that it's preserved, that people will have this vision, this revelation from God, especially preparing their hearts as the time comes. So now, the great question, one of the great questions, who is this talking about? Virtually everyone agrees that this is describing a king by the name of Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes comes from the Greek word, which means to make manifest, to show forth. And an epiphany, it's not quite the same word, but an epiphany, well, it is, it is, I'm sorry, an epiphany in this sense is a manifestation of God. And so he, as you, we already read, he becomes very arrogant, even rising up against God himself. 
On the coins that Antiochus Epiphanes had made, that, that word Epiphanes was on the back. His head was on, his bust was on the front. The word Epiphanes was on the back. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that he was claiming himself to be God, but he was claiming to be, in a sense, the representative of God. And so, in his great arrogance, he assumes this title of Epiphanes. The Jews had fun with words like these. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. They play on the word. But he arose out of one part of Alexander's empire got broken up. If you think of what today we think of as the Middle East, especially as you think of Syria and the eastern end of Turkey, and you think of Iraq and Iran moving over that direction into Afghanistan and Pakistan, that is the part of the kingdom out of which this little horn arises. That's where Antiochus Epiphanes ruled and reigned. And you saw the dates earlier from 175 to 163 B.C., Verse 9, when it calls him or describes this as a little horn, it simply means, the word little means insignificant. It's referring to in its beginnings. These horns, these four horns had formed on the head there of this um, goat in the place of the one large horn that was broken off. But then this little horn, little and insignificant, begins to bud. It begins to show up. Antiochus was not the rightful heir to the throne. His nephew, son of his older brother, who was the king at the time, was the legitimate heir. But Antiochus, Antiochus, through bribery and flattery, was able to secure the throne for himself. So he had an insignificant beginning, but he began to rise in power. And he did, in fact, make notable conquests to the south. He attacked Egypt to seek to conquer Egypt. Egypt was a separate one of those four kingdoms. But he wanted that power. Egypt, as I've told you several times in this series, Egypt there in the south and Syria, Iraq and Iran in the north are always vying for power, always seeking to conquer each other. And Antiochus wants to conquer Egypt. And so he conquers to the south. He conquers to the east, which is Persia, on over toward India. And also it says the glorious land there or the beautiful land because he tramples right through Israel, and in his journeys back and forth between Egypt, he is going to wreak absolute havoc on the people of God and on their temple and on their worship. Now, in verse 10, it said that he, this um, horn grew great even to the hosts of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. What exactly is this referring to? Naturally, again, I think your first thought, you think of the hosts of heaven and the stars of heaven, you're probably thinking angels. And some people would see that, that because of this, they would argue that, that the vision has to go beyond Antiochus to some greater, perhaps Antichrist in the end, or even beyond Antichrist, the power behind Antichrist, who is Satan. In the book of Revelation, you have the dragon who represents Satan, who gives power to the beast, who represents the Antichrist. And of course, no human king can attack angels and throw them down. And so people would perhaps want to argue that this is a reference beyond this king to some other power, even the power of Satan. But as you read the rest of this vision, quite clearly, I think, the host here is not angels, the stars are not referring to angels. They're referring to the people of God. If you look at verse 24, 
His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. You can look ahead also to chapter 12, verse three. Just put that up on the screen. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So what he's... What the vision is describing is a king who is so arrogant and so power hungry and so wicked that he attacks the very people of God with impunity and rises up even against God himself and defiles his temple. Severe persecution of the Jews took place in, as I said, as Antiochus would march back and forth between Egypt and his home, he wreaked terrible havoc In the year 170 BC, he had the high priest of Israel assassinated. And during that period of his attack on Israel, thousands of Jews were killed. One record, 2 Maccabees chapter 5, at one point in all of his destructions and his battles, his army came against Jerusalem and they slaughtered in the space of three days 80,000 people. You just think about that. You know, we consider something a massacre if 10 or 15 or 20 people are killed at one time. 80,000 in the space of three days are put to the sword. In, in the next year, 169 BC, he plundered the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to read a little bit to you. I didn't put it on the screen because it was just too long, but I'm just going to read a little bit out of the book of 1 Maccabees. A little bit of the history of this. Let me just mention this because it, it came up another time that I referred to one of these books. This comes out of the Apocrypha. I just want to be clear. I'm not quoting this as scripture. Someone was confused about that one time before when I quoted from the Apocrypha. I'm not quoting it as scripture, as the word of God. I'm quoting it as history. It's good history. It's not the Bible, okay? Verse Maccabees, chapter one. After subduing Egypt... Antiochus returned in the 143rd year. That's of his, of the way they're counting their dates, not our dates. He went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light and all its utensils. He took also the table of the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, and the gold decorations on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found. Taking them all, he went to his own land. He shed much blood, spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Nebuchadnezzar had done this a long time before, but then they had been returned. And now, again, a very wicked and arrogant king is plundering God's house. I'm going to read some more from Maccabees. Two years later, the king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute, and he came to Jerusalem with a large force. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him. But suddenly, he fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. They took captive the women and children and seized the livestock. Livestock. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom. This is part of what you want to understand about Antiochus, part of his agenda. As a king, one of the ways he wanted to try to unite all of his reign was to enforce 
one single religion on everybody. Religion is divisive, is it not? We know this well today. We're living with that tension in the world today. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many even from Israel gladly adopted his religion. See, this is important to understand. We're going to see this throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. I've been quoting for you, and we've been looking at Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, where it says, those who know their God will stand firm. Right before that, it says, he seduced many with flattery. Many of God's people, many of the chosen people are ready and willing to go along, to get along. That doesn't come as any real surprise, does it? The church does it too. Just think of the church in Germany before World War II. Verse, oh, you don't have the verses in front of you. <laughs> but the king wrote, and the, glad, the, the Gentiles gladly accepted this, but many from Israel gladly accepted this. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land. And here is what we saw in the vision. The vision that was predicted hundreds of years before this took place Verse 45 here in 1 Maccabees says, he directed them to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by every unclean and profane thing so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. Exact fulfillment of what we're reading in Daniel chapter 8. In December of 167 BC, Antiochus committed his crowning act of sacrilege He went into the temple, erected an altar to Zeus, and sacrificed a pig. Now on the 15th day of Kislev, that's roughly somewhere in the region of our December, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. The books of the law, we read this also in Daniel chapter 8, the books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. And anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on the top of the altar of burnt offering. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them. And they hung the infants from their mother's necks. You get a picture. This is a madman, all right. This is, this is an Adolf Hitler. But, and this is a great word, But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. That's 1 Maccabees chapter 1, describing the events that were predicted in Daniel chapter 8. It was a horrible time for God's people. 
But you see what we just noted there at the end, and that, that directly correlates with Daniel 11.32. Those who know their God will stand firm, and they will take action, and they will choose death over compromise. One of the reasons for this vision, to strengthen the faithful, there's going to be a time of horrible suffering. You need to be prepared and ready. You need to know your God. As I've quoted many, many times the Chinese proverb, don't wait until you're thirsty to dig a well. You need to know it now. You need to be preparing now. We need to be preparing. Whether the, whether the, whether the hard and difficult times come in our own lives nationally through some kind of attack on the United States or some kind of economic crisis that may come yet or whether they come personally into our lives. We need to know our God and we need to be ready and we need to be prepared. We need to be growing strong, understanding we're living in a screwed up world and Satan is opposed to us and to God and darkness does not like light. And to understand that suffering is a reality for those who belong to God and be prepared to stand firm and resolve in your hearts not to compromise. This persecution went on. It started in 170, it ended in 164, December of 164, when one of the Jewish leaders, we would call them freedom fighters today. You know, you know how it goes. A freedom fighter or terrorist depends on whose side you're on. But one of the Jewish freedom fighters, Judas Maccabeus, from which the book gets its name, cleansed and rededicated the temple in Jerusalem in 164. Anybody know the name of the Jewish holiday that is still celebrated today? It is Hanukkah. Celebrating, they, they cleansed the temple, they rededicated the temple. And at that time, great and glorious sense of restoration and freedom. And today they still celebrate as one of their major holidays. Now, as I said earlier, some would argue that this vision is, is referring not only to Antiochus, but beyond him to the Antichrist. And they give two main reasons. If you look at verse 16 again, Daniel is told here, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Antiochus did not live at the end of anything that we can measure in particular. That is, he did not live at the end of the world, nor did he live at the end of the period leading up to the coming of the kingdom through Jesus. He's over a century and a half before Jesus. And so what are we to make of this expression, the time of the end? And I'll come back to that. The other major piece I mentioned already is that, that when it refers to the hosts of heaven, some would take that to be the angelic forces. And in the book of Revelation, the great dragon who represents Satan sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven with his tail. And they would see a correlation there and suggest that this is looking ahead to the, the power behind these evil rulers, even Satan's power. I've already told you why I don't think that's the case. I think that... Here, the host of heaven and the stars is referring to the people of God. And the prince of the host is referring to God himself. Why else? Let me just give you a breakdown of why I and many others would not see this as a reference to anyone else except Antiochus. He's the whole point, the whole picture, the whole reference. First of all, this horn in chapter 8 arises out of which beast? 
the third beast, out of the Alexandrian Empire, out of the Greek Empire. Chapter 7, the little horn, which clearly is Antichrist, arises out of the fourth beast. To me, that's decisive. They can't be one and the same because they're, one's from Greece, the, the Greek Empire, the other's from the Roman Empire. But the passage, if you read it carefully, I think clarifies what the angel means when he says this vision is for the time of the end. Notice verse 19. Verse 16 refers to the time of the end, but notice verse 19 again. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. Well, what is he talking about when he refers to the indignation? The indignation here is a period of, this word is also translated wrath or fury, and 21 out of 22 times it refers to God's wrath in the Old Testament. It's a word characteristically used for God's wrath. And as we'll see, this is a reference to God's indignation being expressed through this terrible time of suffering. Look also at verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one, holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision? And this is where we get the 2,300 days. That figures out to six plus years. You go from 170 to 164. The persecution of Antiochus against the Jewish people lasted those six plus years. And so... As you read the whole of the chapter, you read carefully, and as you look now at, at the interpretation given to Daniel at the end, there's no sense that this is looking past Antiochus Epiphanes. It's looking specifically at this one ruler and the evil that he's going to inflict on Israel. We still haven't asked the big question. One more important question. Why? And it's the question anyone who suffers is going to ask. But why this horrible period of suffering for the people of God? Well, let's answer it from the text. Verse 10, it grew great even to the hosts of heaven. I won't read all of that. This is where it talks again about the hosts and the stars and so forth. But verse 12, a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. Why? Because of transgression. What did we just read in 1 Maccabees? What did many of the Jewish people do when Antiochus commanded that they all embrace one Greek religion or one pagan religion? Many of them happily, gladly went along to get along. The people of God are again persisting in their unfaithfulness against God. Not everyone, of course. There's always a faithful remnant. But in this point in time, the people of God are becoming unfaithful. We read verse 19 just a moment ago, the latter end of the indignation. God's wrath now. God's indignation. You know, I kind of like that word maybe a little bit more than wrath. The word wrath, you always have to apologize for it. But when you speak of God's indignation, I think it, at least for me, it kind of loses a little bit of that that wrath carries a connotation that's just a little hard for us to embrace at times. Indignation, I can understand indignation. I think we all can get the sense that there is righteous indignation. It can be fierce, it can be passionate, 
not apologizing for God's wrath. I'm simply talking about the linguistics and the semantics and how these words hit us. Sometimes to speak of God's wrath just kind of hits you a little bit like, okay, it's true, and I've defended it many times, and I'll always defend it, but you always feel like you got to say something. Whereas with indignation, I don't feel quite the burden to apologize or explain. Verse 23 also adds this, and this is a very interesting note. I want you to, to look at this carefully with me, and we'll show you something that you may or may not have seen before in Scripture. It says in verse 23, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit. What transgressors? The transgressors among the people of God. A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Notice what it says there. The transgressors have reached their limit. There's some kind of a limit to violating God and his command. What it's saying is God will only tolerate that for so long. Let me show you some other scripture. They'll be on the screen. Genesis 15. This is a passage with Abraham. He's still known as Abram at the time. And God is letting him know what's going to happen, that basically his people, his descendants are going to be captive in a country for a time. They're going to be released and then they're going to come back to this land and they're going to conquer and take over what we know as the promised land. Verse 16 says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for it's not quite yet the time for my judgment to fall on the people living there. That's the point. They shall come back at that time. God timed the exodus and the conquest of of the promised land in, in part to inflict his judgment on the Canaanite people. It says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, once again, this is one of those kind of things that maybe a little, some people probably get a little troubled by this when they first hear it. But I want you to, to recognize, if you, if you think this through carefully, this is really grace. Because when you look at the history of, of how long God gives someone to reach the full measure or to fill up the limit. He gives them centuries. The Canaanites were among the most wicked people in the world at the time. Their idolatry included uh, child sacrifice. You talking about abomination to God, taking your own baby and plunging a knife into its chest and burning it to God or your gods. And attached to that kind of stuff is all kinds of, of immorality and and drunkenness and evil worship, let alone just the social ramifications of that kind of godlessness. What I'm trying to say to you is God gave the people, these Amorites or Canaanites, centuries of his patience. And when you look even of God's patience with his people, look at the prophets, look at Isaiah and Jeremiah, all the prophets that God sent to his people before he ever inflicted his judgment on them through the conquest of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians or through the conquest of the south by Babylon. There were hundreds of years of him sending and pleading and, and begging his people to repent. Why will you die? He says to them again and again and again. Turn to me and live. This isn't that God flies off the handle like an angry, abusive father and starts beating his children around. 
This is a merciful and long-suffering God who in his patience and his grace allows this kind of evil to continue and to continue. If you were there, you would have been like Habakkuk saying, God, how long? I'm crying out to you to do something. You're not doing anything. You'd be troubled at God not addressing the wickedness of his people for so long. Another verse, Matthew chapter 23, this comes from the lips of Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is when he really, he really lets them have it there in Matthew 23, right? He just unloads. But notice what he says. He's talking to them about their hypocrisy, claiming to be the sons of the prophets and that they wouldn't treat a prophet that way, but in fact, they are gonna treat Jesus that way. Verse 32, he says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. And then Paul says something similar in 1 Thessalonians chapter two. You brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. In God's indignation has finally come. So that's in reference now to verse 23 when it says, eight, Daniel 8, 23, at the latter end of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their limit. This period of suffering through Antiochus Epiphanes has come because God's patience has been exhausted. And he is now going to bring judgment on his own people. See, I told you this wasn't going to be a fun message today. <laughs> There's one other factor here. Is we're, we're, what we're asking here is the question of why. Why this judgment we saw in verse 10, because of transgression, verse 19, the latter end of indignation, verse 23, transgressors have reached their limit. Also in verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. In other words, the end that he is talking about, it's the time of the end. His vision is going to take them up to the end, the end of this period of judgment through Antiochus Epiphanes. The point when God has said, enough is enough. As you would say in a relationship, imagine a husband whose wife is unfaithful again and again and again. And through tears and pleading, she promises it won't happen, it won't happen, but she, she goes out again. And it just keeps going. If you were that husband, any one of you men, there would come a point where you would say, enough is enough. That's exactly what God says in the Old Testament. He calls Israel adulterous, prostitute, giving her love to every stranger that passes by again and again and again. That's why I use the word persistent. God brings judgment on persistent sin. Now, given the way I understand this vision, it's all been fulfilled long ago. Well, over 2,000 years ago, it's done. So you say, well, that's an interesting history lesson, Scott. What's it in it for us? Well, I think you're probably getting the sense of what's in it for us. 
Let's not dismiss the obvious to start with. God knows everything, including the future. That's important. So that's a word of hope. Isaiah chapter 40 says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? In the middle of your pain, it's easy to feel like God has forgotten you. The omniscience, that is the all-knowing mind of God, isn't just a piece of basic Bible doctrine to learn in your Sunday school class or your Bible study. It is a great word of hope and comfort. And what is happening to you does not escape the notice of God. He is working out his purposes in you. By the way, that chapter, Isaiah, that I've quoted from, it's Isaiah 40, goes right on to say there that they'll run and not be weary. Okay, that's the great passage. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll walk and not faint. But from a chapter like this, we also learn the ways of God. Even if, even if the chapter itself doesn't speak directly to our time, we can learn the ways of God. And we need to know and understand. I think we need to review something. And that is that God's judgment falls on his people for persistent unfaithfulness. Persistent is the operative word here. Not talking about your daily struggle with your sin or mine. Not talking about feel guilty right now and be afraid God's going to clobber you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an adulterous wife who keeps going out on her husband and does it over and over and over and over again until the husband's patience is exhausted. What about the church? Is that true for the church? Well, let's consider what God or what Jesus had to say in the book of Revelation to the churches. What did he say to Ephesus? I, I, I noticed the time, so I won't go through every one of these. There's six out of the seven where he has a word to say to them. But look what he says to Ephesus. His, he says, you guys are doctrinally pure. You're hardworking. You've maintained the truth. You're a great faithful church, but I've got this problem with you. You're not loving anymore. What did he say to them? You better repent. And if you don't, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. God, Jesus will take churches out because they are not loving. They can be doctrinally pure and hardworking. And I think that's the side of the equation we are on. I'm not saying we're there, I'm not accusing us necessarily of anything. I'm simply saying in our particular branch of the family of God, we're on the side that loves truth and stands faithfully for truth and works hard in ministry. If we're tempted to any failure, I think we're tempted to the failure of being unloving. And Jesus says, I'll take you out. I'll end your church unless you take care of this. We do need to see a few of these just to get the flavor. To Smyrna, he says... I know your tribulation and your poverty. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Once again, a, there's going to be an end. There's going to be a limited time frame. Church at Pergamum, I have a few things against you. 
You're holding some false teachers and some false teachings and practices of sexual immorality and idolatry in your midst. Therefore, verse 16, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and do what? War against them with the sword of my mouth inside the churches. There are people that Jesus will go to war with. To the church of Thyatira, there's Jezebel. It's figurative, of course. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her into a sick bed, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. To Sardis, verse 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Now, Laodicea, we all know Laodicea. This is the lukewarm. I want to spew you out of my mouth. You don't taste good. Hot drinks taste good and cold drinks taste good, but this lukewarm stuff is so bad I want to spew when I taste you. I love this passage for this reason. He speaks to them very plainly. You say you're rich, etc., but you do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But this is what I love. Verse 19, Jesus says, those whom I love, I talk to this way. I say this to you because I love you. I reprove and discipline you, so be zealous and repent. Judgment of God and the discipline of God will come against his people, especially persistent unfaithfulness. Again, please do not hear that you're struggling with something in your life, a sin issue. You struggle with your temper. You struggle with the purity of your thoughts. You struggle with some, some other kinds of issues that you know are not honoring to God. You're battling and trying to live a faithful, godly life. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about persistently being unfaithful to God. We know, I think, already, and I won't take any time with Hebrews 12, the great discipline chapter. It's for discipline that you endure, the chapter says. What were they enduring? They were enduring persecution. Is persecution the discipline of God? According to Hebrews chapter 12, it is. But I do want to read this one passage for us before we finish today. 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. There's something that's, again, an unwelcome side of discipleship, belonging to God. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, I got this all together, guys. Let me show you how to do this. I don't want to rejoice. I don't want to suffer. I'd rather be pampered and spoiled till I die. You know, just keep the, keep the American economy strong and my life easy, please, you know. <laughs> right? But rejoice in this, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. That's your own fault if you suffer for that. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christ one, let him, be, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For, and this is an interesting statement here, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's really the message of Daniel 8 today. When this comes, entrust your soul to God. As a faithful creator, do good. Final point, God limits what his people must endure, and I will end on this note. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation. Obviously, we think of temptation as sin, to sin. The word translated to temptation in the New Testament, the Greek word, is the same word for trial or test. And this verse, I believe, should be understood in the broadest sense. Not only temptation to sin, but also trial and testing. All, of, all inclusive. So read it this way. No trial has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability or tested beyond your ability. But with the trial, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a message calling us to endurance. Daniel chapter eight. Calling us to understand the ways of God, understand the reality that suffering may and probably will come. And to be ready and to be prepared and to be the faithful of God who will stand firm. Let's bow together. Father, not, a, not an easy word or a pleasant word at all, of course. But even this is your grace. Even this is a message of hope. You've told us Suffering will only last for a time. Your discipline will not be forever. And that is a message of encouragement and hope. But Lord, we want to be people who have dug our well now, not wait, waiting until we get thirsty, not waiting until the faucet doesn't run anymore. We want to be people who know and understand your ways in this world and be ready and prepared for what we may be called upon to endure in this life. So help us, help us to hear what you've told us through Daniel and through your word. Lord, I just pray for each heart here today that you would, you would address each one, you would speak precisely to the need you would give courage, you would give assurance, you would convict where it is needed, you would give us a sober sense of what it means to live for you and what you've called us to in this place and in this time. And we're not called simply to have a good life with a little Jesus on the side, but we're called to be about Jesus and his kingdom above all else. And as we 24-7 live for him and on his mission, we're ready to pay any price, ready to endure any cost, ready to lay down, make any sacrifice, lay down any of our treasures of this world in order to live the life you've called us to. Lord, now we want to sing for you we're coming into your throne room. We're going to form a choir now. And we're going to sing for your name, for your glory. Even in this, 
may you grant us your spirit that it might be worthy and you might be pleased as you hear a sweet sound in your ear. In Jesus' name, amen.